0: So if you got your Bibles, like Gary said, we're going to be in Psalm 1. You could turn there or we'll have it on the screen in a minute here. But while you're turning, like Gary said, we're in the summer of the Psalms series and chapter 1 is where we're at. And so just a little background information about the book of Psalms. Psalms was written by David and then some anonymous people. David wrote about 73 of the Psalms we have today, and then the other 49 were written by people who didn't put their name to it. So maybe it was David or or Solomon or, or some people in Israel. We know that David started it when he was a young man writing these Psalms. And before his death, the first 41 that are in our Bible today are all attributed to him. And he wrote those, those psalms, and they were compiled, and the nation of Israel used those the same way we used them today in their worship service. We read a, a couple of them this morning, and they also used them in a way of personal time. So one of the cool things is, is that the psalms were compiled over about 600 years, and in the 600 years that they had those, they would come together in different clumps of books, and David's, the first 41 came right before the end of his death, and then a little while later came the next section, and four sections of Psalms were written so that around 400 B.C., 400 years before Christ came, they were compiled into the book that if you open your Bible, that's what we're going to look at today. And so, the thing that I think is the coolest about Psalms while I'm just preaching one today, it seems like no matter where you're at in your life, that God can speak to that situation in one of those chapters. You could be at the highest high, or you could be at the lowest low, or you could be lost. Or you could be wondering why your enemies are doing better than you are. And and it's going to be addressed in this book of Psalms. You know, the scripture says that heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And that is is the essence of his scripture, of Psalm, is that his word spoke to people 3,000 years ago the same way that we're going to be speaking about it here today and last week and the weeks to come. God is using his word. It's live and it's active. So I want to kick off the first one and let's get into it. We'll read it together. It says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his day, on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff and the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So, when this first chapter is put in here, it's for a reason. So all the, all the scholars of the day in the, G, the Jewish, the, the Jewish uh, religion would say, what, how do we want to organize these? What do we want to put them in there? And this first one portrays all of the Judaism that they would have known and studied and learned. And it's this principle right here on the screen. It says that a righteous life will be accompanied with blessings and happiness, and the life of the wicked will be followed by sorrow and ruin. And so they put this first one in here intentionally because it kind of describes everything that Psalms is going to cover in the next hundred plus chapters of people pouring their heart out in their relationship as it connects with God. And so what our author here is, which is David, he's doing is he's kind of given us the keys and the tools to make it to where we have a relationship with the Lord. So we see off the bat, we're going to start with three things that he talks about. He has three steps in the way that he conveys this. His first one is he talks about to walk. And then the next one is he talks about to stand. And then the third one he talks about is to sit. And so each of these are pretty important. So we're going to look at those off the bat here this morning before we get into the real meat of what the success is for you and I to be the Christians that David calls to prosper. So walking, right? This is 101 here. So if we talk about how to walk, what to do, I I think I'm just wasting time if I'm explaining what walking is. We all know what walking is. It's one foot in front of the other from this point to that point. And what David is saying here with this word that he has is he's describing that you're moving in some direction you're changing where you are and you 're going to where you 're going to be, and you 're moving in that process. The interesting word that he uses here is wicked now wicked when I think about wicked, I think about um, some world leaders that have existed before Hitler or maybe some of the North Korean leaders or I don't know, today's leader is Putin, like we talk about these men of history and, and current times we live in, that their hearts appear to be as wicked as you could possibly be. Or maybe you're thinking about somebody who's committed a crime that they're on death row for, that they've done something heinous, and, and their life's going to be taken from them as a punishment for the for justification for taking that life, that that's exchange. what's going to happen. Those are the things I think of when I think about wicked. It's the people who do these things, but the word that's used here in Hebrew is rasa, and that means, that's a little Spanish part with the R, I rolled my tongue if you don't speak Spanish, that's, that's really important in the language there, but rasa is the Hebrew word for wicked, and it means this, not in covenant relationship with God. They live according to their passions, do not be misled. This right here, this word of wicked is not Hitler. It's not Putin. It's not Charles Manson. It's not the wickedest of the wicked. It's anyone who does not have a relationship with the Lord. So when David warns the people that he's, he's coming from his life experience. If you're walking with someone who doesn't have a covenant relationship, you're going to get to the same point that they are going to get to. And if we read it in the very beginning, that way leads to ruin and destruction. So his first warning is simple. Don't even walk with them. Cause if you walk with them, then you're going to get to the same place they're going and it's not going to be anywhere near the Lord. The second one, well, my mother, she told me when I was younger, always say, my dad as well, that bad company corrupts good character. I thought it was my mom, but it was really Paul, and she didn't take credit, she took credit for it. So I don't know what to say about my mother on that one, but my mother would tell me that. Dave Ramsey says it like this, show me who your friends are today, and I'll show you who you'll be in 12 months. Why is that? Because the people that you are around are who you're going to become. So that second one he talks about is or stand in the way that sinners take. Now standing, I think about this illustration. When I was in probably middle school age, I don't know, it was maybe 12 or 13. I remember we were at a Publix where we lived in Peachtree City where we grew up. And it was me and my dad, and we were in the checkout with the, the shopping cart. And I remember asking him for one of the candy bars right there by the aisle. I mean... I've eaten a few candy bars in my life, but that day he was like, no, you're not getting a candy bar, and you know, like I see in my children, it just never hurts to ask, you just keep asking and keep asking and keep asking, and maybe once out of 50 times you'll get it, but you got it, and that was me, and we, as we're walking out, my dad asked me, do you know why they put the candy bars there? And at the time as a kid, you know, there's a lot of things in life you don't know because you just don't even think about those things. And then you kind of get your eyes open. He said, they put them right there and they put them in packages with colors that will entice you to take them. And they put them right there at the counter because you're having to wait for someone to ring it up, to put it in all your other groceries. And it's a real simple task of just grabbing it and putting it on the belt. And these items they sell have a higher profit. And there are more sales that you weren't going to get before, but now they're going to get those. And I remember thinking, why would they trick me into buying candy bars? I mean, we're already big enough. I don't need to have more candy bars, but it's called marketing. Marketing. And this is what David's talking about, is the same principle from when I was a young kid that even today when I go into stores or when I see things on TV or when someone's trying to say something to me, in our neighborhood people are always ringing the doorbell trying to sell us something. And that lesson pops up every time, is to be on guard. What are you trying to make me do that I don't otherwise want to do? And we see this stand right here in David's warning because... You may have good intentions. You may be planning to just get what you have and go out the door. But if you stand in the company of a sinner, eventually some of those things can break down and you can fall temptation. And David knows that that's going to put you further away from having an ungodly relationship. It's going to break the covenant between you and him. And he gives it as a warning because when you stand, you become like those like those sinners. stand. The word there means to seek the counsel of evil people. Now y'all may say I would never ever seek the counsel of evil people. Maybe not willingly, but you turn on the news or you scroll the never ending feed that literally never ends and there are evil things being said. And they influence us whether we want to admit it or not and David knows that. And he's warning the people that he's writing this to, as he's pouring out his heart, to be careful on that. And the third one, each of these three things that David talks about, they escalate in my mind. And the third one is sit in the company of mockers. Now, at my house, I got three boys: a nine-year-old, eleven-year-old, and a fourteen-year-old, and. There's a lot of mocking going on in our house from time to time. You know, one kid says one thing, then the other one will repeat exactly what they say in a very sarcastic or tone that makes the other one punch him in the arm, punch him in the head, punch him somewhere, then it's full-out disaster in our house. We're trying to stop a fight that's going on with three boys, that's the way it goes. And, And we think of mocking in that way. But the word that he's using here is a different word. The Hebrew word has a much deeper, fuller understanding. And it says here, those who hold nothing sacred, scoffing at God and all that is associated with him, to completely identify with their proud, sinful, and evil behavior. So, the sitting is the most dangerous. And here's why. You have accepted that way of life completely. Not to the point of just, it is who you are, but it's what you enjoy doing. So I don't know where you're at, I only know where I'm at. And God convicts me on things every day. But if you ask yourself, like, where am I at? Do I enjoy doing the things that displeases God? But this is a warning for all of us right here to check yourself. And God has given you his spirit on the inside. And part of his spirit's job is to convict you and to guide you and to tell you where you need to be and what you need to be doing. And that voice we think of as our subconscious sometimes, but it, it is really God on the inside trying to help steer us to where we want to be. And so as we hear David's warning this morning, that is what we should be doing. We should be avoiding evil at all costs. Now, I don't know if you have little kids or if you maybe have some grandkids that are real little or if you can remember when you had little kids, but little kids, one of the nice things about that period is when, I mean, when they're real little, you tell them to do something or you tell them not to do something and they usually do it. And why do they do it? They do it because they trust you as a parent or a grandparent and they're like, okay. I'll do it, or they go do it real big. They come back, and they're proud of what they did. But then when your kids get a little bit older, you ask them to do something, and then it's always followed by, well, why do I have to do that? You better explain what the reasoning is. And sometimes, as a parent, the reasoning is, because I said so. Right, Gary? Because like, I said so. That's what you get right now, to go do it. But David is writing this psalm, and he has explained to us, as believers, what not to do but he doesn't just leave it there for us. He comes in in the next stanza, and he begins to explain why you don't do it and how to avoid it. And this is the part of the psalm that gives us hope. This is the part of the psalm that should encourage us as a way to do it. So let's look at what he says a godly person is. A godly person is influenced not by those around them, but by the meditating on the word of God. He calls it the word, the law. Meditating on the law. Now, meditation is not like yoga with your legs crossed and some downward dog and some breathing in and out. It's not some stretching. It's not what that's not what meditation is. In this part here, the meditation that David is talking about, the literal definition of the word haga is to murmur or read aloud or to ponder over something. So Gary's normally up here, but he's back from vacation, so his he can't do it, so I'm here helping him fill in. And so Gary is a seasoned pastor. He does this week in and week out, what I'm doing up here today. So he probably has a whole different method, but this is not my day job. As Gary said, I'm a missionary in Mexico and we build houses for families, for pastors in the community to open the door to spread the gospel. And so when I come and preach, it's a process for me. And so I don't know because I've got friends who are pastors and I've never asked them how they do it. I just kind of made what worked for me. And over the years, how it works is I I take in my time, in a quiet time, and I pray, and I ask God, what do you want me to preach on? What do you want me to teach on? And then sometimes Gary calls you and just tells you you're preaching on Psalm 1. Is that okay? Sure, I'm preaching on Psalms 1. So I get the, the passage or the story or the verse or whatever it is, and then I begin to read it. In Scripture, I read a few different translations, and then I've got some commentaries, and I'll pull them and I'll turn to the section where they talk about, in this case, Psalm 1, and I'll read them, and I'll see what other people say, and then some of the things will come off the paper and strike me, and I'll write them down on a little note that I have, and I have this running notes, and when I've kind of exhausted all the stuff that I have, I'm left with a few pages of what does Psalm 1s mean. And then I take those thoughts and I organize them according to how they go in the chapter that we read. So I'm giving you guys the pointers. You guys need to write this down because Gary's going to have you preach sometime in the next year. That's our big announcement this morning. Everybody gets a Sunday to preach. We're teaching you how this morning. No, I'm just kidding there, obviously, because nobody wants to do this except for Gary, right, Gary? So, um, So when I take those notes and put them in order, and then the last step that I do is I get alone from my family, so sometimes they're all out going and doing something, I'm in the house by myself. Sometimes I'll go into a room that I know I'm by myself, and sometimes there's just no peace and quiet, so I'll just get in the car, and I'll sit in the car in a parking lot or even my own driveway, and I'll begin to read the things that I've written out loud. And in that process, there's some murmuring, there's some stuttering, There's some parts that are proclaimed boldly. There's some parts that come off the paper. They're no longer in the message. There's parts that are on the message. But in those moments, that is the definition and the essence of meditating. Because I know from experience that when I do those things, the scripture becomes alive inside of me. And I begin to understand fully deeper than just skimming over it what God means in his word. And David's laying that on here, and he's saying this is what a godly person does. They meditate on the law of the Lord. What I found interesting in one of that last section as I was describing how I prepare for a sermon is one of the things that came to me this time was I just felt like God laid on my heart that notice how to become godly is not the same thing you do to be ungodly. Now what I mean by that is ungodliness, you're associated with other people. You're standing with them, you're sitting with them, you're, you're walking with them. But to be godly, it doesn't then tell us, stand with godly people, sit with godly people, walk with godly people and you will be godly. Now there is a place for that in the church. Absolutely. There's a place for that in our Christian walk. We need others to help us as iron sharpens iron. But if we truly want to connect with the living God, it is no substitute with another person. It is only through the meditating and thinking and praying and reading his word that we can connect with the living God. And so he's given us the keys right there. And what does he tell us it will look like when it's done? He says, the person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit and season. Two words in there that I think are key for us. The first one is he talks about streams of water. Now, when David wrote this, he lived in Palestine. So Palestine is modern Israel. It's right off the Mediterranean Sea. And it is a lot like where I live in El Paso. El Paso is a desert. It's hot. It's dry. We have some crops. We grow a lot of pecans and we, we grow a lot of green chilies. And we, we have certain things that we grow. And there's a river that runs through El Paso, the New Mexico dammed it up so they could take all the water, so we don't have a ton, but around where our river is, you'll see a lot of greenery and a lot of life. That is the way it is or was in Palestine 3,000 years ago when David writes this. And so the illustration that David's saying that everyone who's reading it at the time would know is that, yeah, if there's water there's going to be these big, giant trees. It's hard to understand when you live in Georgia and you're from Georgia because just given enough time, there'll be big, giant trees everywhere because water comes from the sky all the time. But in El Paso and Palestine, there's no water. And so the picture that David is painting is there's rivers that run through their land. And what they do is they take off of those rivers and they dig these canals these irrigation canals that kind of like a hand, they finger off and off of those will be their crops and the water, their animals, and, and they'll have food, they'll have to eat, they'll have people that'll sustain communities. And so as he's writing this, people understand that's exactly what he means because they know that where one of those little fingers goes, those irrigation canals, there's gonna be trees. And not just any kind of trees, but trees that provide shade. And when you live in the desert, the shade is your friend. It helps you cool off. And he talks about fruit. And you could pick the fruit. You could eat the fruit. It could sustain your life. And he's painting this beautiful picture for the people of Palestine, the people who are living in that time, to understand that this is what a relationship with the Lord is like. Now, I told you this isn't my day job, but my day job is to build houses And share the gospel and lead people to Christ to help grow the local church. And one of the best verses that describes what I do is in Matthew. And we're gonna read it here. It's, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down, the storms rose, and the winds blew, and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears the words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. Matthew seven twenty-six to 27. And this is about a builder who chooses where they're going to put their foundation. Now one of the cool things about living in the desert is, the digging is pretty easy because it's all sand. You can just dig out the sand and put your forms and there you go. The problem becomes when the rain comes and the wind blows, you'll go back to the house and you'll check it out and, and one of those corners that's exposed the most, when you left a year ago, it was a nice square rectangle with nice sides on it of the concrete being finished. And now you come back and you see that part plus another foot underneath, because the soil has come out. And if you left it like that, and you came back a year later, there'd be a little more of the foundation exposed. And this is, this is what I would see, I see this frequently when we go around Juarez, especially where it's a desert community, and some families will fix it, they'll try to shore up their foundation with some gravel or some, some harder dirt. And it's just the way it is. Cause you could dig down 10 feet and it's going to be sandy the whole way. But that is a definite, that is what Jesus is painting this picture of versus the other way was the last time East Ridge came. I was looking here cause I don't think anyone was here on that particular trip, but we built this house in Acuna. And it was on a hill that kind of went down like this, and at the bottom of the hill, it was just solid ledge rock, like shears of ledge, limestone, hard rock rock that's in this part of Mexico. And we used some pickaxes, and after like 30 minutes, we got nowhere. And so we finally ended up having to buy a dump truck of dirt, come in, pour it, set it out, get it level so we could put our foundation. And when I went back and visited that one, it looked exactly like it did the day we poured it because the foundation was on solid rock. And that's the illustration that Jesus is painting right here is the same one that David's trying to make. When I was in second grade, I think, maybe... It had to have been second grade, maybe first grade. Mom sent us, we lived in Lithonia right up the road here, and we went to this church, VBS. The name of the church was Bible Baptist Church. It had a real Baptist, It had a real biblical name, Bible Baptist. You know, it was, this is what, this is a church that preaches the Bible. And she put us there at VBS to get us away for the summer. And I remember we did the worship in the sanctuary, and then they had every head bowed, every eye closed. You know that part that I see that hand out there, that that whole part. And they said, if you want to go to heaven and live forever with Jesus and you don't want to go to hell, then raise your hand. And so I raised my hand. And then when they were done, they said, if you raise your hand, every head still bowed, I want you to get up and go to the back of the sanctuary. And so I went to the back and there were some ladies back there and they said to me, we're going to have you pray this prayer. And then I prayed this prayer, and they're like, all right, you're, you're going to heaven, go sit down. So I went and sat down, and then Tuesday came, and we were doing worship, and every head bowed, and every eye closed, and if you don't want to go to hell, and you want to go to heaven, raise your hand, and I'm in first or second grade, and I raise my hand again, and they tell us to go to the back, and I go to the back, and I said the prayer again the second day in a row. And so Wednesday comes around, and you get the picture, it's the same thing, and my hand's up still, And so, and this is a true story. This is not a lie. This is a true story. I go to the back, and the lady meets me in the back. I don't know why she didn't tell me on Tuesday. (laughs) Why she waited till Wednesday. Maybe she thought I needed two days. But she says to me, you don't need to come back here and pray this prayer again. And I said, well, I still don't feel any different. But you've already prayed the prayer, and you can go back and do your seat. As a young kid, nothing had changed. Like I was still the same boy that came in there on Monday morning in my mind and in my eyes. But as David writes this thing and he talks about us being planted by a stream, that is our Christian life in an essence. God puts you where he wants you and it takes time for you to mature. It takes time for you to grow. It takes time for you to bear fruit and you can't rush that. So you can say, well, I'm going to make this decision today that I'm going to change the way I'm doing the things that I'm going to do. And, and, and the angels in heaven will rejoice. But I want to just let you know that it's not going to be any easier tomorrow because you made that choice. It's still going to be difficult because there are pains as you grow and as you get older and you mature, things change. And David's laying this out right here to us that we know That as a tree that grows over time, that is how your relationship is to avoid being the ungodly that are described at the beginning of the chapter. And what is the promise of hope that we have here at the end of this that he tells us? He says, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. That's our promise, that God's watching over us And you can keep reading through Psalms, and you can get all the way to the very last one. And you're going to see that David, he had these same problems. God, where are you at? Where are you at? I don't see you. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but I fear no evil. And and that is our life as believers in Christ. It's not going to be great at all times, but we're going to have happiness. We're going to have that peace that's inside of us that God has given us. The alternative is a separation from the king, an eternal separation. And just the same as when I was seven or eight years old, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go there. I want to be in heaven with Jesus. I want to live forever. And while it happened in that moment on the Monday morning, whether I knew it or not, the same can happen for you And then it's time to mature. It's time to plant ourselves. The last thought I'll close with here is that in my time at Casas, I've been there for, full time as a missionary for over 21 years and three years before that as an intern. And so the way it works is churches just like you guys get together with a group of brave people who say, I'm gonna go to Mexico, that's out of my comfort zone, it's not Cancun, and they come on a trip, And 15, 20, 25 people will come and build a house with us. And over the course of that time, I have worked with a lot of individuals from all over the country. And some of them are some of the most prosperous people that I have ever met. Of course, financially, but also relationally. There's some people I know that they, everybody they come in contact with wants to talk to them, wants to be around them. They are a prosperous spirit who people want to be with. And the one thing that all of these individuals who I've met over the years have that's the same trait is that they have been planted in the same church or the same family or the same business or the same community for a very long period of time. Because you can't just hop around to the next best thing over and over, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a church, whether it's a job. You can't hop from thing to thing to thing and expect to somehow change that formula and it make you prosperous. No, it's only through being planted where God wants you that he can use you over a long period of time to provide shade and to bear fruit. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we just thank you for your word. and We thank you for your psalm that you have written through David. And God, I know that it's David's hands and David's heart, but it's your words speaking through him. And so, Father, I just uh, want to lift up this morning each person in this room who's here on a Sunday that normally we're at lakes and beaches and vacations with friends and family, but these individuals who are here this morning for your purpose and for your plan, Father, I pray that you would put in their path the people that they need to help lead them in the meditation of your word, of your law, so that, God, they could have a deep relationship with you, one like a tree planted by a stream. And Father, we just thank you for your word, And thank you for everyone who's here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.